If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. It's 11 days until Christmas. Do you know what that means? One less chocolate in those wacky calendars. Here's Scott Thompson. Man, how's this? That ain't your little drummer boy. That's your big badass drummer boy. Uh, that is a man by the name of Nick Mailer, who is a uh, old friend of our producer, Will Weber, who has since passed. But uh, every so often when Will gets a chance to play his great stuff, he does. And kudos, a uh, great version of Little Drummer Boy by the, lick, uh, the late rather Nick Mailer. So uh, very cool. And we are into 11 days till Christmas, so I don't know. Um, Will started this yesterday by playing the Bare Naked Ladies Christmas stuff. So is it like Christmas now for the top hour all the way in? Let's do it. It. <laughs> All right. I guess I guess why not? Uh get Scrooge off the microphone here and let's get into the spirit. All right. Three cent a liter day at Pioneer Petroleum Locations. All the details, 900 chmlcom I know you're going to help us help the kids fill up at Pioneer today. Three cents from every liter goes to the CHML Children's Fund. We'll talk to our uh, Children's Fund president coming up moments from now and see how the day is going. But please, on your way home, wherever you're going out and about today, uh, through the whole of business day, three cents a liter uh, from every liter of gas sold goes to the CHML Children's Fund at participating Pioneer Energy locations. All right. Uh, the chatter of health care continues. And, oh, man, I don't know... I, I, like, I'm having a hard time getting through it, so I don't know how anybody else is, or maybe you're just tuning it out. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the Prime Minister said the premiers must commit to health care reforms. And I'm just, oh, my God. Um, where has this person been for the last three years? Where was this person before he he started talking about dental care and daycare? And we know the NDP leader wants pharmacare, yet we have absolutely no interest in fixing our health care system. Again, the premiers, you know, uh, making all kinds of noise that they want to simply meet with the pre with the prime minister. And uh, the health minister to close today uh, basically say, he starts fudging numbers and saying, well, if you add it up, we're already giving that amount of money anyway. Well, then I guess everything is all right then, isn't it? We should just all go back to bed and pretend that our Canadian health care system is as great as everybody thought it was right up until a global pandemic. Then we realize our poor health care workers are at their wits end because we need to fix this. We need to change the template. And the prime minister is sitting there along with the health, health minister 
Minister playing volleyball with the with the premiers who have been waiting at the table for three years to have this discussion. It was led at the beginning of the pandemic by BC Premier Horgan, who got all the premiers together and said, let's get this done. And now, all of a sudden, Christia Freeland, Jagmeet Singh, the Prime Minister, they're all talking about it. But then they're saying, the health minister today said the ball is in the the Premier's courts. You're kidding me. You're absolutely kidding me. Uh, Here's a report from the Canadian press, Nicole Reese, on the B.C. health minister saying to the Prime Minister, we already have the reforms. Get to the table. British Columbia Health Minister Adrian Dix says healthcare reform is already underway in most provinces, but the federal government does not seem willing to join premiers at the table yet to discuss an increase in funding. In a year-end interview with the Canadian Press Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said he wanted to see a plan for improvements to the system before throwing money at the problem. Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos made an overture to the provinces last month, offering an increase to the federal health transfer in exchange for improved data sharing across the country. But the meeting ended without progress. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Already on it. Already on it. Where's the Prime Minister? And then, of course, Jagmeet Singh starts screaming and yelling because I guess, boy, oh boy, that Canadian dental plan is rock solid with money going out the door and nobody really knows what it's where it's going, how accountable it is. But now all of a sudden, Jagmeet Singh says, yeah, we're going to pull our support unless you fix health care again. Uh, been in a three year nap, have we? Uh, anyway, the Prime Minister says he don't care about the NDP. Listen to this. If health care continues to be such a crisis point for so many Canadians, um, an arrangement with the NDP is the least of our worries. If it continues to be a problem, if it continues to be a problem, what planet is the Prime Minister on? It is a problem, and there's people waiting at the table for you to discuss it. Uh, and then the prime minister says, you, as Canadians, you don't want to see him in the prime in the premier's talk. You're not interested in watching them talk. I don't think people care whether or not we sit down together. I think people care whether or not we can start fixing our health care system. And that's what I'm focused on. Well, when are you going to do it? I know it all sounds good. You've got our backs. But when is it going to happen? Because it really seems like you guys have just woken up to a problem that has been going on for three years of a global pandemic. And I said this yesterday, and I stand by it again today. If there hadn't been a problem with a shortage of medication only in Canada and a outbreak of the flu and a respiratory virus because we've been, uh, you know, indoors for the last two and a half years. If this wasn't crippling the hospital system and killing kids the way COVID-19 was crippling the hospital system and killing old people, the prime minister wouldn't even be talking about this. He'd be too busy saving the planet to save Canadian health care. And then he throws it onto the the backs of the premiers till they come up with some sort of reform. Because you know, health care is a provincial issue. Well, so is dental care. So is daycare. So is the drug plans. But that doesn't stop the NDP and the liberals federally from sticking their nose in there and creating the same sort of system that is failing us in health care. 
So it amazes me how we've got this mass issue with health care, yet we're continuing to create these other programs going down the exact same road as what health care is with dental, with daycare, with pharmacare in the wings, but we're not fixing this. And yet there's the premier saying, I want to see some reforms. We want to see some leadership. We want to see somebody driving the bus for a change. And, you know, I understand that the prime minister uh, doesn't have a handle on economic issues. He's not a real business guy. He doesn't understand the case for Canadian liquid natural gas. He doesn't see the business case. But he's supposed to be like a socialist guy who's looking after us, taking care of us, get, you know, watching our backs. He's great to hand out our own money back to us. But when all Canadians are screaming because they want some changes to health care, which we can all see from province to province to province to province, east to west, north to south, where is he? Where is he? Where is he with our backs? I'm just waiting for some fun. People don't want to see us meet with the, with the premiers. Really? What planet are we on? And it is three cent a liter day. Pioneer Petroleum's three cent a liter day uh, in support of the 900 CHML Children's Fund and uh, the whole Tree of Hope uh, Tree of Hope campaign. All the details on how you can help us help the kids at 900CHML.com. But today specifically, uh, we're asking you to uh, drain the tank and then fill it up as three cents from every liter um, uh, goes to the fund. Let's bring in Olivia Mackay, president of the Children's Fund, and is with us now. Olivia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. So here we are about halfway through the month. How's it looking as far as donations, money coming in uh, before we get to three centiliter debt here? Pretty good. Uh, a lot of donations have been coming in. I was just actually getting a deposit ready for tomorrow. And then uh, today we've had a good four or five charities come in. You know, we filled up the tree, emptied it several times today in a just looking at my calendar tomorrow, another four are coming in. So it's uh, coming in the toys, and they're all going out, and we've got about five more pickups on Friday and a few more next week. So a lot of charities coming in, you know, being able to fill those trees for those kids or, you know, the gifts at the Christmas party. So thank you, everyone, who has donated so far. And as we've said many times, uh, obviously in the lobby of uh, of CHML, Giant Tree and such, and uh, it's incredible because all of a sudden uh, this mass of toys come in and you can barely get to the stairs. And then like an hour later, somebody else has come in and uh, has taken those and put them under the trees of kids. So it's amazing to see how much turns over uh, on a daily basis. All right. So uh, we had Pioneer on yesterday. Uh, they actually, uh, you know, it, it, they really, really love doing this. And it you know, they were even saying that the spirit at the gas station that day or today is a little different than it normally is the other days of the year. So people really seem to embrace this and, and get into the giving mode. Yeah, and it's great because, you know, if they're unable to donate in other ways, they're donating by just filling up their tank. So it's nice to see the people at the pump today. I actually, my gas light went on, so I ran over to Pioneer, filled up my SUV. Um, my husband filled up today. My brother-in-law is going. So it's nice to see, you know, the family support from my end. And then just talking to staff and just reminding them. Got all the uh, station vehicles out today to get filled up. So, you know, if you're on your way home or you need to get gas tonight, just visit a local Pioneer near station and you know three cents from every liter goes back to the children's fund and you know pioneer over 32 years has donated over half a million dollars to us that's you know a lot of money going into a lot of charities throughout these years 
So uh, the the great thing about this is, like you said, um, you're you're really uh, you know unconsciously, subconsciously making a donation just by filling up uh, your tank of gas. You got to wonder too how many people just show up and probably don't even know what it is going on today, and uh, are are just uh, making a donation without even knowing it. Yeah, and it's great. And you know, it's great too. If we get this snowstorm, you should fill up your tank tonight, no matter yes. what, just to be prepared for tomorrow. Perfect that's a timing. very, that is a very <laughs> valid point and spoken like, spoken like a true mother, Olivia. Uh, yes, we are expecting. That's right. We are expecting some freezing rain overnight and could eventually turn to snow. So it's going to be pretty ugly tomorrow. So, yes, you want to make sure you're doing all of that today instead of uh, leaving it until tomorrow. All right. So uh, here it is, December 14th, the three cent a liter day at Pioneer. What else do we have going on between now and Christmas that we have to need? uh, We have to remind people about. The toy drive is still going on, so we're accepting donations right up until Sunday, and even I can go pick up next week. And then any donations uh, to the Christmas Tree of Hope, we accept all year round, but if you want that tax receipt by December 31st, you can uh, donate in person here at the station or go online at 900chml.com. You can donate through Canada Helps or PayPal Giving Fund. Or you can what? text the word donate to 30333 to make a donation as well. Of all of these ways to donate, and we were talking about this during the tree broadcast, because there's now it's just so many different ways to do this. Which one seems to generate the most? Which one ha- has surprised you and taken off? Like, what about texting, for example? Texting is going pretty good, but it's a lot of the online. So I, I see all the online donations come in. Yeah. So I'll get an email saying that someone's made a donation to the charity, which is great. So I get those on a daily basis. And it's nice, uh, the last interview I did, we got one right after. So I was really excited about that. So to know that, you know, the messaging is working. And people can also call me here at the office because we have a debit machine so I can take credit cards over the phone. All right. And again, another reminder, 900CHML.com, 900CHML.com, all the details and how you can help us help the kids. You can text uh, the word donate to 30333. And of course, today, three cent a liter day at Pioneer locations. Go in, fill up three cents from every liter goes right to the CHML Children's Fund. Another great day, Olivia. Thanks so much and good luck Thank moving you. forward. Olivia, Mac- Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund. Three cent a liter day. Get into Pioneer and fill up. And again, you know, I got the got the storm coming, got the freezing rain coming overnight. You want to get that done tonight. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We talked to you yesterday about how a scientist for the first time produced more energy in a fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. This is a major breakthrough that they've been working on for an awfully, awfully long time uh, in a quest to harness the process that powers the sun. What does this mean for the business of energy? Obviously, uh, this technology is still decades and decades away from uh, actual development. Development, but it is obviously a major first step. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks, uh, Scott. Does this revelation, this experiment, does this change our direction in any way, our journey uh, to renewables and where we're going? I don't think in the short run, much as I am very excited by this uh, breakthrough, which I've been studying, I'm following, studying is too strong, following uh, for years and years, as have millions of other people. Uh, But there's still a long, long way to go. This was a critically important breakthrough uh, because for the first time ever, they, they always could 
produce energy from uh, from fusion. The problem was is it took more energy to do it than came out of it. Well, that's not sustainable to use a modern phrase. You know, uh, you know, if you have to spend more energy uh, to get uh, a certain amount of energy, what's the point of doing it? Uh, so this was a huge breakthrough. But to go from there to commercial production of energy, according to one researcher I read, uh, one of these one of these scientists with you know PhD in physics said it would take decades before it'll become uh, commercially uh, viable because they have there's many more things, many more breakthroughs that they need to to achieve. So we should be excited. We should be optimistic, but it's not going to solve our problem in the next five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, according to anything I've read by the scientists. You talked about a use for this. Do we know in what sort of application this would come, what it would be used for, what, what, it, what it could help out first? Well, let me back up um, and just say something that it's kind of we don't think about it, but it's it's so obvious. Energy is absolutely essential for everything. I'm reading from a physics science website. Energy is essential for all life and all processes that occur across the entire universe. So that's how important energy is. Everything, our bodies generate energy. Plants generate energy, trees. I couldn't charge my cell phone or use my computer to talk to you as I'm doing this moment without energy. It happens to be electricity. So what fusion does is it releases energy, which is can be converted into electricity, just to be as blunt as possible. It's Think of it as the opposite of nuclear reactors. There they mm. bust open big, heavy atoms and in the act of breaking the atoms apart into smaller atoms, they release energy. It also produces radioactive substances and radioactive fuel that gets lots of people really excited. This is the opposite. This is where you fuse together very light atoms, very uh, light in terms of their atomic weight. I don't want to get in the weeds. And in the act of doing so, you produce almost no radioactivity and enormous unimaginable amounts of energy which is can be produced produced to used to produce electricity in other words if this became commercially viable goodbye gasoline goodbye oil goodbye nuclear power plants goodbye hydroelectric dams goodbye everything that is used goodbye mm. coal everything that is used to make uh power to make energy and Every society, every I mean, if you look back, the difference between us and the Stone Age man, you know, in those BC cartoons, BC man, mm. they had no energy whatsoever other than, you know, their natural energy in their body. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have light bulbs. They didn't have anything. They didn't have power tools. Everything was by hand. And so it led to a very, very restricted society. And, of course, in the wintertime, you froze, and some people froze to death. And there was no air conditioning, of course. In the summertime, you could literally overheat if it was too hot. So if we can commercialize this uh, process, which is the same process that powers the sun, by the way, it's the identical process from a physics point of view that powers the sun. And if we can harness it, then essentially energy will become free. Hmm. It will become endless 
and wow. and that and look at all the money all of us spend every year on all the different types of energy. It's, it, we need all kinds of energy to produce food. What's been driving up the price of food in the last <laughs> year and a half? The price of energy going through the roof. So this is unbelievably revolutionary if it ever is uh, commercialized successfully, because it will affect every area of our lives. Uh, we've been talking, Ian, about solar, wind, electric vehicles, even hydrogen for decades, 20, 30, 40 years. Yes. Uh, we've certainly made progress as far as efficiency of all, but there's really been nothing new. Is this the first new big thing? I think it is um, because, and I'll explain why. Um, uh, you know, windmills have been around, my goodness me, if you look at, the, I've been to Holland, Netherlands. Mm, yeah. and they, they had windmills way before we knew the word green or alternative energy. They had windmills in the 17th century, for goodness sake. People think, oh, energy, uh, windmills, aren't they advanced and high-tech and new? No, they've been around for a long time. And, uh, and the idea of putting a dam across a river has been around for a very long time. Uh, you know, we've had batteries for over 100 years battery storage this is really at the very edge and why and it's going to take a huge amount of physics and a huge amount of money uh to make the breakthroughs but this is going to literally allow us let me be really sort of uh, melodramatic scott we will become gods hmm. if you think and i'm using gods in a sort of a very non-religious sense if you know gods or the gods are responsible for the sun and the stars and the moon and the universe and the sun powers, the suns in the world generate energy and, and allow our earth to survive, well, we are going to be duplicating what the gods are doing because we're going to be harnessing the energy using the same physics process as the sun and that heats our earth and, and produces a life and makes life possible. So that's why. And it's not just that, you know, okay, wow, we got a whole bunch of new energy. It's that energy has been absolutely essential to every country in the world to raise their standard of living. Everything needs energy. Uh, you know, uh, x-ray machines in hospitals, a high, high sophisticated healthcare system requires energy. The food production process requires energy. Every one of us heat our house in the cold in the winter or with air conditioning in the summer. So let, All let me ask is energy. Let me ask you this, Ian. So obviously, and let's just say this is at least 50 years away, uh, and that's, Probably. I think, safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. What will energy look like for the next 50 years? We've only got about a minute left. What will I'll energy very, look very like? Quick. Um, uh, thank you for the question, because when you study what the experts are saying, and I'm talking economists and engineers and so forth, and I'm talking Natural Resources Canada, the public servants. I'm talking the U.S. Department of Energy. I'm talking the U.N. agency, the IEA. They are all forecasting out 50 years that we're still going to be mostly largely majority dependent on oil and gas uh we are not going to be a hundred you know this nonsense of mr trudeau that we're going to have decarbonized in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years is just simply not supported by anything i'm reading i don't mean by the by the ngos by the environmental ngos they'll tell you all kinds of things i'm talking the people that are the public servants the non-partisan public servants who have no axe to grind they're forecasting 50 years out that we are going to majority of our energy in canada u.s europe in the world according to the iea un agency over 70 percent will continue to be oil gas coal uh, in other words, carbon-based fuel. So if this comes along, this is going to obsolete 
all carbon mm. fuels, including and will obsolete alternative things like yeah. windmills and so yeah. forth. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, talking about fusion and how it changes the world of renewables moving forward. All right, Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There is bad weather coming uh, overnight. We're expecting some freezing rain, and uh, then who knows what happens from there. It's uh, it's a mixed bag as we go through uh, the cycle of this. Let's bring in Ross Hall, uh, Global News Meteorologist, and is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi there, Scott. I am doing good. I got a little into the you know Christmas spirit, the holiday spirit there with the... Uh, the weather outside is frightful, but uh, I don't know if freezing rain necessarily incites, you know, feelings of uh, holiday fear necessarily, right? <laughs> it's not really winter wonderland when it's freezing no. rain, is it? It's got no. a little different edge to it. So uh, give us an update. What is going to happen? I understand this is going to happen overnight into Thursday morning and uh, freezing rain on the way. Yeah, it's going to be, this is a very complex system and it's very localized. So if you're talking to someone that you know uh, for areas around Toronto or east towards, uh, say, Peterborough or Ottawa, this would be a very, very different system. But for Hamilton, around the Hamilton area and areas towards the west, this looks like freezing rain. Starting uh, overnight, we're going to be okay. It's going to be more towards, I think, the latter half of the morning commute. So uh, likely that freezing rain will start happening around 8, 9 a.m. Uh, oh, we're going to likely see a few hours of it. And then the big question is, do we see a transition over to some rain, which we're hoping? Because the key with freezing rain uh, is the fact that the rain is actually not frozen. It's melting. There's a warm layer aloft that melts the snowflake into a raindrop. But it's those temperatures at the surface when they're below freezing, uh, that ice can accrete. It can accumulate on uh, roads, especially untreated roads, walkways. You know, everyone's tried to kind of uh, clear up their vehicles after ice is built up on their windshields and so, windshields and so on. So um, that is the concern. But I don't think this is going to be ice storm territory by any means. And if you look at the way things pan out, I think Hamilton actually doesn't get as much snow as some areas farther east. So if you're not a fan of the snow, uh, this system, well, you'll likely appreciate it. So uh, obviously coming in as freezing rain at the latter part of the morning, the rush hour and such, as you mentioned, and then prolongs for a period of time. That's when it's crucial as to which way it goes, I guess, as, as far as staying at freezing rain or going to rain. Any idea how much of that we will get? So at this point, uh, I mentioned, you know, the danger levels for ice accretion. We've all, you know, some of us have experienced ice storms in our lifetimes. And that's usually you're talking 10, 15 plus millimeters of ice accretion. In this case, I think we're going to be around five millimeters. So enough to make things slippery on mm. your walkway if you haven't treated it. Uh, roads as well. So make sure you're aware of that. And the winds are going to be picking up as well. They're going to be southeastern winds, uh, about 70 kilometers per hour through the day. That wind chill will be near minus 10 tomorrow morning. So not a pleasant uh, mid-December day. Uh, but I'm not, I don't think we're going to be reaching to the extent of power outages and so on with this freezing right. rain. It'll likely change over to rain into the afternoon, maybe some wet snow. But if you're traveling east into Toronto, uh, areas east of there even, that's where there's the potential for, we're talking close to 10 plus centimeters, 15, even 20 centimeters for some spots. So those are the areas that are going to hit hardest uh, with the snowfall from the system. And how long will this last, whether it's rain or freezing rain or what have you? 
Well, it's going to stick around. We're expecting that transition to happen around the noon hour. So still some wet snow. It's still going to be messy into the early afternoon. Uh, so the evening rush could be impacted by a bit of wet snow, still a little slippery from because temperatures are not going to rise to 10 degrees. They're still going to be around one to two degrees. So uh, depending on, you know, if you're on the mountain with the terrain and so on, it'll likely still be slippery. So give yourself some extra time for that evening commute. But I think by tomorrow night, certainly the system is out of our area. Areas towards the east will, again, uh, be impacted by some snow and then we're still looking at relatively calm weather there's gonna be some showers some flurries over the next couple of days but of course as meteorologist i'm always looking ahead and it looks like uh next week next friday in fact around december 23rd this next system that could move in it's not a certainty yet but this one could be an all snow event so for those wishing for that white christmas and not freezing rain this one could deliver, of course, it's a difficult travel period as well. So, uh, but that's a few days away. That's about a week away. So we're going to keep an eye on that system as well for next week. All right. For this one that starts uh, late tomorrow morning for us at this end of the lake, pretty much uh, um, a freezing rain and a, a rain event. Where does it turn to snow and how much are those areas going to get, say, north of Toronto up into cottage ski country and such? Yeah. So I should mention there will be likely some accumulation, but I think it's going to be in the five centimeter range for Hamilton. Uh, and then, yeah, if you're heading north uh, towards areas around Barrie, for instance, and even uh, areas around Newmarket and Aurora and northern portions of the GTA northeastern portions, uh, Port Perry, and those areas, uh, you're looking at the potential for 15 plus centimeters with this by mm. early Friday morning. So uh, traveling east will certainly be the messier part because this system, as it hits the Hamilton area, yes, some freezing rain, some wet snow into the early afternoon, possibly lasting mid-afternoon in that evening commute. But after that, I think Hamilton is in the clear for any of the heavier precipitation that will be uh, moving east. So uh, do be aware of it for the morning commute tomorrow, especially that freezing rain. And again, a bit of wet snow, something to deal with for the evening commute. It's going to be that morning and evening commute, I think, uh, tomorrow that will be most impacted by this system. By Friday, uh, not as much of an impact for Friday morning, but areas to the east will see some heavier snow. Ross Hall, Global News Meteorologist. Uh, rain, freezing rain coming in into uh, the area as of tomorrow morning. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. All right, let's talk about fusion again. Uh, we talked about this uh, yesterday and again a little bit today on how this is a uh, first step. And they've been working on this for decades, and it's still decades away. Uh, but basically uh, harnessing the energy that processes, uh, that uses, uh, to, uh, that we see the sun use to process heat and energy and sunlight uh, here at home uh, with, nucle with nuclear fusion. How does this change? our renewable strategy moving forward does it obviously this still decades out let's call it 50 years uh let's bring in dan mctagg president of canadians for affordable em energy uh, former liberal mp and is with us now dan thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thanks for having me scott Obviously, big news yesterday, although stressing that they've been working on this forever and it is still a long, 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 long uh, way away. Um, we've been talking about EVs, battery storage, wind uh, turbines, uh, solar energy and such for, for decades now. Is this the, the first new big thing? And, and, and still, how does this get us through the next 50 years? Well, you know, I almost forgot about this because you remember as a high school student, uh, the old... Uh um, fusion mm. reactor that they had. I think yep. it's uh, experimental in at Princeton. And uh, a good friend of mine who's now at the University of Arizona, now uh, <laughs> retired from there, literally a, a rocket scientist, 
had talked about tokamak way way back when and said this is the promise of the future and i asked him uh very recently i said uh, whatever happened uh, you know about two years ago we talked about these devices that's still 100 years away so i mm. you know i haven't updated he hasn't updated me on his latest but obviously this shows promise as it did in 1980 as it did in 1989 when it was claimed that they had been able to uh, get the atoms to fuse and uh, create uh, through plasma replicate the power of the sun and of course uh, create uh, you know cold what amounts to cold energy which would have uh, you know an eternal abundance of, uh, of, of of possibilities so all good news uh, but uh, like everything else uh, it's uh, still a long way off and not ready for prime time and what does this mean for the next 50 years? Because, again, this is still decades away. As I mentioned, what we're using with uh, uh, battery storage and, and, and wind and solar and such are quite older technologies. How do we get to this point? It's, much, well, it's it pretty replaces, much the same discussion. Yeah, I mean, it replaces the fission reactors that we have been using and would uh, create an opportunity, uh, perhaps on a smaller scale, uh, you know, more amenable scale to be able to provide electricity. Uh, of course, that electricity is important for everything, but you still need hydrocarbons. And that's the, that's the, the, the downside of this. You can't make cement. You can't make plastics. <laughs> the physical properties required uh, isn't just power. It's actually product. And uh, electricity doesn't produce product. So unless, of course, uh, someone wants to rewrite science and is inventing some new stuff, uh, this is important. It would be a great breakthrough, uh, but a little bit like the uh, proverbial... <laughs> talk of uh, uh, the uh, perpetual motion machine <laughs> 5,000 years ago, uh, we're still you know, very much uh, at the discussion stage and the prospect and probability stage. In the meantime, we have to live. Uh, the interesting dilemma, I think, will come for those out there who really think that population is the problem and that we're decimating our environment and our, uh, we look at what's happening in Montreal. They all believe that, uh, you know, the, uh, the biodiversity of the planet is affected not so much by what we emit, but the fact, mere fact that we as humans uh, do some, uh, do things that uh, aren't necessarily in the interest of the environment. So there's a hint of Malthusianism in this, and that, you know, uh, world reduction population is still very much uh, a, a thing. I don't think this changes that uh, that uh, perspective that's been around for a very very long time. So how does this dis- how does this change the discussion or does it what we need to be doing over the next 50 years to make sure we have energy while we're waiting for all this? Scott, I think it's what Canada has been doing for quite some time, diversity of energy mm. uh, prospects. We know not all forms of energy are going to be, you know, perfect. I mean, this would be uh, obviously a breakthrough in terms of how you create and generate uh, electricity uh, more so than anything else. Um, you know, uh, being able to use plasma in a certain type of, uh, you know, in a certain type of environment where it could be used in a vehicle or it could be used uh, on a, in, a, in a given home. All of these things do show significant potential and, and astounding promise, but they also, you know, have to be taken in context. Uh, uh, there is uh, only the proof that this can happen not that the that, that you can demonstrate that on scale, which I think is important. So, you know, we have all this energy that we have created in this country uh, through hydrocarbons, through nuclear, uh, through natural gas, which is hydrocarbons, and of course, uh, right in our own backyard here, down the street, uh, as Adam Beck did it for us over 120 years ago or 110 years ago. Uh, you know, the uh, the ability to get uh, hydro generation, and so. I think Canada will continue to lead, if it wants to, it so chooses, in the variety of energies needed around the world. Because not everybody's going to use one form of energy production over another. 
the fact that we have a menu, a suite of opportunities, uh, would be uh, would would certainly be uh, something I think policymakers should look at. But of course, they're not. They're all focused on getting rid of hydrocarbons and wishing away and thinking we got some other brand new technology that we can simply snap our fingers and create. Of course, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for EVs. It's certainly not happening with battery storage. It's certainly not happening with windmills, and it's not happening with solar because you cannot serve. Uh, you know, uh, the amount of energy, the efficiency of energy, the density of energy, and the dispatchability uh, uh, or the reliability of that energy, which we desperately need at a, at a moment's notice. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that tomorrow when, you know, uh, if the grid is challenged, uh, you know, something goes down, the hydro mm-hmm. lines go down, uh, at least people have natural gas or propane or alternatives uh, to, to electricity. So it comes back to my point. I think we have to be, bear in mind uh, an eclectic variety of energy options is always a smart, sound way to go if you want to uh, be realistic in a country mm. like Canada that has four seasons. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about how fusion uh, enters into the discussion of our energy mix. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Whether it is uh, police stations uh, from China harassing citizens here, whether it's uh, RCMP contracts with those related to the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's allegations of election interference uh, from China in our federal election of uh, late, uh, certainly lots of discussion about uh, the government of China and this once golden goose who now we are questioning. Uh, as a partner and a recent article in uh, the Globe and Mail uh, is Canada. Canada is being too naive about the risks of Chinese technology uh, to talk with us. One of the authors, Margaret McQuaig Johnston, Senior Fellow, Institute for Science Society uh, and Policy, as well as Senior Fellow, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Uh, Margaret, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, uh, thanks for inviting me. It seems that the tone has really changed on this just in the last uh, couple of weeks. Why is Canada so naive when it comes to this? We remember the five eyes and Huawei and and the two Michaels and all of this. This discussion has been going on for quite a long time. Why has it changed now? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. This has been going on for more than three years. Um, it, it took that long for the government to make a decision on Huawei, and they made the right decision in the final analysis, but it took them a long time to get there. And, uh, you know, they have developed an Indo-Pacific strategy, which really confronts China head on. That was just released a couple of weeks ago and was a surprise to a lot of us that they were really identifying China's aggression and and. Uh, and coercion because this government has tended to be more soft on China. It's the conservatives who have been really pushing to stand up to China. But I think the government was blindsided last week by the news that um, the RCMP had contracted with a Chinese company to provide their most sensitive radio communications equipment, including radio frequencies, um, getting access to radio frequencies that the RCMP would be using for their most sensitive communications. And that that was really a big surprise and kind of a shock, not just um, to those of us in the public, 
But to, to the prime minister and the leaders of the other parties, uh, they were all saying, how did this happen? And now an investigation has stopped, started. There's the, the contract has been suspended. And now a parliamentary committee is going to look into what exactly happened there. Uh, how can anybody think that any of this was a good idea? And you use, use the word soft, and that's what I have written down in front of me here, because the PM has been accused of being soft. Uh, we remember the days of John McCallum when he wanted uh, even more trade and, and, uh, and to be interwoven with China. Um, does the prime minister now have to change his position, or has he already done that? Well, he's done that in the Indo-Pacific strategy, which again took three years to, to uh, develop. Um, and it was delayed and delayed and delayed. During that time, there was discussion that it would be just a high level thing, or maybe it would be just some messages in a ministerial speech. Uh, there, there had been a more detailed uh, version of it drafted. And in the final analysis, what we got was something that was comprehensive. It had a big sec section on China. At one point, it wasn't going to say anything on China. And it was all about China's aggression and, and the way it's treating its neighbors in, in the Indo-Pacific region. And, and then looking at um, shifting and pivoting to uh, focus more on other countries in the region and deepening our trade ties, but also civil society, security, military. There's a lot of money, 750 million for infrastructure. It's a $2.3 billion initiative. Um, and you know, I think, I think they landed in the right place, but in the meantime, we still have a lot of um, Chinese technology all over our country, including um, video cameras on government buildings, which can see who's going in and out of buildings. And that's, that's really a concern. And, and so um, I was calling for the government to uh, do a closer investigation of, of what they've got what their procurement process is and how we can uh, move beyond using Chinese technology. Um, you, you know, even listening to you explain this in layperson's terms, it's it, I'm having a hard time understanding how anyone got this wrong, because as you've said, we've been talking about it for an incredibly long time. Now, because the government has taken the position or did take the position they did about being softer on China, are they going to do this investigation that needs to be done? Because in the end, it's not going to make them look you know, it look well, not going not to make them look good. It's not going to make them look in a nice and a positive light here. Yeah, they know they, that this looks really bad. And worse than that, there was a case a couple of years ago of a Chinese company called NukeTech that uh, some of your listeners may remember got a contract to put in the airport type screening equipment at 170 Canadian embassies and consulates abroad. And mm. what that would have done was give that Chinese company um, a look in at what was in people's briefcases as they were going in and out of the buildings and who was going in and out of the buildings when. And as soon as the, this came to light and came to the public attention, the government canceled it. And not only that, a parliamentary committee looked into what went wrong there, developed a whole series of recommendations for beefing up national security reviews in the procurement process but 
their report came in June of last year, then there was an election, and then, you know, it was a new government, well, the old new government, and then and then people got on to other business. So this report uh, was kind of shelved, and I have no doubt that they're going to resurrect it and implement the recommendations. They have to, because uh, if, if those recommendations had, fo- had been followed, this contract with the RCMP would never have been signed. Only have a few seconds left here. Will we ever know what candidates received, uh, allegedly received support from the Chinese Communist Party? Um, you're referring to 11 who uh, apparently uh, allegedly received su- uh, uh, support, even those candidates may not know. Um, and so I, I, I think p- perhaps not. But you know, time will tell because, you know, things will come out in the wash. People will write about it, you know, when when time has passed. Presumably there's an investigation into that as well um, because that's part of uh, foreign interference in our elections. And the government said has said that they're investigating all kinds of alleged foreign interference in uh, the 2019 and 2021 elections. Margaret McQuaig Johnston with a senior fellow Institute for Science Society and Policy as well as senior fellow graduate school of public and international affairs University of Ottawa Margaret thanks so much for the time be well thank you you too take care the article in the Globe and Mail Canada is being naive about the risks of Chinese technology Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer he'll delve into the issue until he is you're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk 900 CHML all right you know I think since I was a kid and the first time I ever went to Niagara Falls and um, you know saw the old power station and such I've always kind of been mesmerized by it and, and what's gone on over the years and blah 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 my father used to take uh, you know super 8 millimeter photographs of the falls and we'd watch it when he'd set up the screen and then we'd laugh when you make the falls go backwards and back up because you know hitting reverse and such so uh anyway enough about my uh childhood memories of niagara falls but something uh has happened in the last little bit and we've talked with uh, david dames about this before and i've seen him on like various other shows talking about it and every time i see it i get chills up my spine because what they have done is they've now opened up uh the power facility or parts of it including uh the 2000 2200 foot long tunnels that lie underneath uh all of this where the water used to go and now you can literally tour all of this and get right down to the base of the falls uh the pictures are absolutely incredible and if you get a chance go on the website and check all of this out because it really is not only an engineering marvel but great that you can now walk through it all uh david adames is with the ceo of niagara parts commission and here now david thanks for the time hope you're well i'm doing extremely well thanks so much scott for having me on so uh obviously i'm i'm glossing over all of this tell everybody exactly what is open and and the reason i'm calling you is because i wasn't sure what was going to happen as you headed into the winter months and this was still going to be available as an attraction over the winter months as obviously the falls in the winter is way different than it is in the summer but describe what this is and and what you can see if you go down there so the Niagara Parks Power Station is open. This is an adaptive reuse of the former Canadian Niagara Power Station. Uh, we opened in two phases. Uh, phase one was a generator hall floor plus the evening sound and light show called Currents that opened in July of 2021. And then this year, July 1st, 2022, we opened the tunnel. So as you described, it is a 2200 foot or 670 meter 
tunnel that takes guests uh, from the power station. We go down a glass elevator, seeing all the different layers uh, of the power station, seeing that technology and, and guests end up in what we call the wheel pit where all the water after it did its job of generating power left the power station. So guests really follow the flow of the water. So they get down in that wheel pit, they enter the tunnel, walk down that tunnel and see this spectacular view, never before seen view of the lower Niagara River, the Niagara Gorge, and of course the Horseshoe Falls and American Falls. So basically what happened was the water would come in, it would be funneled in, it goes down a giant chute and it hits the turbines, turns the turbines, then goes out this exit per se and back out into the river. And that's what we're seeing now. Is that accurate? That's right. So this is uh, was one of Ontario's first green energy projects. It's called a run of the river hydro plant where the water coming from the upper Niagara River entered the power station through what was called the forebay. The chute, as you described it, was the penstock. Water would go down the penstock, take advantage of that drop uh, using gravity, got the turbines turning, it got the alternator or the generators going, generate that power. And then all the water that was used in hydropower generation returned to the lower Niagara River. So as I said, a very, uh, a very uh, green energy project. And give us a bit of history here, how long this was in use. Yes, yeah, so it was constructed between 1901-1905. It was the first hydro plant on the Canadian side of the Niagara River. It operated right up until 2006. It generated 25 hertz power from each of the 11 uh, generators. And the great thing is everything was left intact. So it was in remarkably good shape when, when Niagara Parks took it over in 2009. It took a few years for us to uh, think about what type of attraction we wanted to create. But really, in a two-year period, uh, from June of 2020 through to opening phase two in July of, of 2022, we did the adaptive reuse, a $25 million project. We are financing that uh, with a loan through the Ontario Financing Authority. So we're going to pay that back over 10 years from the proceeds of the admissions that we receive at the attraction. So uh, there's no cost to the taxpayer, um, but it's a wonderful legacy project uh, to have this as a new attraction in Niagara Parks in Niagara. And why is it not used now? Why not a refurb here and use it? It would have been too costly to uh, refurb the, the power station to upgrade it to 60 hertz uh, power. And of course, we have the wonderful Sir Adam Beck plant on the North mm -hmm. Niagara Parkway. Uh, there's uh, Beck 1 and Beck 2. And uh, OPG today it continues to invest in that plant and is generating an awful lot of power, a lot of hydro power. Uh, so that's still an active uh, hydro plant on the Niagara River. And what happens with this attraction in the winter? Can we use it? Is there, uh, and and I, from what I understand, you don't know yet because you're still going through your first season. So this is our first season for the, the tunnel and the viewing platform. Again, that juts out in the lower Niagara River. What I'm really hopeful is we can keep it open as long as possible. But of course, this is our first winter with that open. And I'm also looking forward to seeing the ice formations from that viewing platform for as long mm. as we can. But overall, the power station will be open year round. So uh, guests can come and see the generator hall floor. We have wonderful uh, interactive, sorry, interactive exhibits there, great storytelling opportunities. Our evening sound and light show currents is on. And then the tunnel, at least part of it will continue to remain open during the winter, hopefully all of it, but we don't know if, if the viewing platform itself can uh, go through the entire winter. But we'll certainly keep your listeners informed uh, as we go through the winter. Absolutely fascinating. And website, where can we go to find out more, David? NiagaraParks.com slash power has all the information about the Niagara Parks power station, including ways to uh, buy tickets and the hours of operation. 
All right, lots of history in and around Niagara Falls uh, having to do with hydroelectric power, and now you can literally go down and see where it was all created. David Adame, CEO of Niagara Parks Commission with us. David, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, a new Leger poll uh, suggests that the Tories still have a small lead over the governing Liberals uh, and have slightly widened the gap. The poll, uh, the poll conducted by Leger over the weekend says 33% of respondents would vote for the Conservatives, 34 the Liberals if a federal election was underway. It's the fourth consecutive monthly poll in which the Conservative Party has maintained a lead and the fourth since Pierre Polyevra became its leader to talk more about all of this and what it means moving forward. Uh, Andrew Enns is with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger, and with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, doing well, Scott, and I hope, uh, hope you are as well if you're getting ready for the holiday season. So far, so good, thanks. So any surprises here for you, Andrew? Uh, not a lot of change we've seen uh, consistently here. No, no, not a lot of change, uh, Scott. You, uh, you, uh, you kind of hit it on your intro. It's been four months of you know, conservatives with a uh, with a slight lead over the over the liberals since uh, Pierre Polyev uh, came on as leader. I think I guess a bit surprising is maybe the fact that there isn't a whole lot of change going on. One would think maybe there might be a little bit of movement. There are a lot of number number of issues, you know, coursing through the opinions of Canadians these days that might uh, affect how they view um, you know governments and political parties. But it's it's pretty stable, quite frankly, on the uh, on the federal seat. It seems that things just this week have really ramped up, whether it's the health care issue, which all of a sudden we're now seeing lots of federal politicians talk about, uh, and also interference through China. That has seemed to uh, resonate over the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Do you think that is going to make any changes uh, moving forward in some of this polling, considering, as you said, things have been pretty stable for a while, but now it seems that there's some issues that, that have Canadians a little irritated? Um, I mean, look, potentially, Scott, but I, I, I really think the issue that's going to cut, cut uh, deepest with Canadians in terms of, uh, you know, that'll, that'll pique their interest and then maybe move some uh, support at a federal level is going to be, you know, when they start sort of getting at some of that cost of living stuff. I mean, I still think um, that's really the, the, the most acute issue for Canadians. And obviously, as we're into the shopping season for Christmas, it's, it's one that's probably on the mind of a lot of people. Healthcare's look, it's, it's critically important, um, but I also think that it's one that's been sort of an issue for so long that Canadians are becoming a bit jaded around around the you know any politician that says I've got the answer to our our healthcare woes. You know, trust us, we'll fix it. I think they've heard that so many times that they're starting to go, yeah, I'm not so sure, and and. Um, you know, they sort of move on. I don't know if it moves the ballot. You don't think it will be a election issue if one is called? I mean, there was, uh, in, in, on, on that note, uh, chatter earlier this week, uh, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh said he was, uh, he's not ruling out pulling uh, support away from the Conservatives if they don't act on health care. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I guess uh, I think, I think it, it, it will be an issue in the campaign, but I have to say, Scott, like I've seen a, a number of federal elections can, election campaigns followed uh, followed them, participated in them at various levels. Healthcare, quite frankly, is one of these one of these things that where all of a sudden the parties all sound pretty similar. 
you know, they, um, they tend to uh, promise lots of money, um, promise not to privatize, and mm. before you know it, they sort of move on. Um, as I mentioned with um, with Jagmeet Singh, uh, there was a lot of chatter about whether there is an election uh, in the works. I think um, uh, former uh, NDP leader Thomas Mulcair wrote a piece that said he thought there was one on the horizon in 2023. Uh, any feeling of that for you, or do you think we're still in this for a while? You know, I, I, I personally still think that we're looking uh, that this runs its course into 2024. I think uh, that... Um, there, there's lots of ways the, the you know the federal liberals can, can avoid an election. I think it's it's interesting that that Jagmeet Singh, you know, kind of is threatening a bit about pulling out his support for the uh, the you know the current liberal government. I would take a hard look at that recent by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore. The NDP I think polled four or five percent. Um, their numbers really aren't moving much. I mean, I'm not sure what he gains by going to the polls, you know, really quickly. I mean, it doesn't, I don't see that his party ultimately gets any further ahead and may fall further behind. So there's, there's more, there's more involved in the calculus. I think, you know, healthcare is an issue for sure. And there's an opportunity to get some good, some good media attention and, and potentially leverage some, uh, you know, some uh, pressure on the government. But, I think all parties are going to look hard uh, at, at an election really quickly. Uh, voters are in a bit of a, I would I would characterize it as a snarly mood. They're not happy. Mm, There's yeah. lots of reasons for them to be unhappy. And, and if you, you force an election, you better have something to put in front of them that's going to make them uh, at least think you've got some solutions or you could face the wrath. I uh, only have a, a little bit of time left, but you talked about the by-election in Toronto, won by Liberal Charles Souza. Many are saying that if um, if Pierre Polyever was making any ground in Ontario, that would be different. How significant is that by-election, or is it? It didn't seem the Conservatives were putting too much effort into it. No, I I think they took a hard look at the riding early on and, and um, you know, looked at things that uh, suggested that this would not be one where they're going to put a lot, a lot of effort in. I don't think, um, you know, Mr. Polyev uh, did much campaigning there, if any at all. I think um, that they're in this, I think they're they're looking at this as a bit of the long game, um, mm. you know, slow and steady. And um, if I were if I were to make predictions, I think, look, these vote, these vote numbers aren't going to change dramatically over the next while. I think it's going to take a campaign to sort of force Canadians out of a bit of a comfort zone and start taking a hard look at the parties. And and, and I think for Mr. Polyev, it's, it's, look, enjoy the fact that you've had four months of decent polling and um, and, and do your internal homework and, and, and get your get your uh, you know policies and your organization lined up for a, for a campaign at some point in time. Andrew Enns with us, Executive Vice President, Central Canada for Leger on the recent poll and where we are politically. Andrew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, uh, Scott. And if we don't talk uh, before, have yourself a very Merry Christmas. And back at you. Thanks so much. If healthcare continues to be such a crisis point for so many Canadians, um, an arrangement with the NDP is the least of our worries. I don't think people care whether or not we sit down together. I think people care whether or not we can start fixing our health care system. And that's what I'm focused on. Okay.
Um, I think Canadians do care that the provinces and the feds do sit down and talk about it because they want uh, solutions. And um, uh, again, you have to wonder if there wasn't uh, issues with the healthcare system and the kids getting the flu and the overloading of the emergency wards that we've saw during the global pandemic, whether we'd even be talking about this at all. Uh, and it has been just in the last week that Jugmeet Singh, a leader of the NDP, Christia Freeland, talking about how Canadians are frightened and and finally, the prime minister saying, if this continues, as if it's been just like a temporary thing, it's been going on for the last three years. Uh, where are we going with this? And uh, why are we chatting about this now? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on where we are in regard to health care reform of some uh, sort. It seems that the premiers are waiting for the prime minister uh, to come to the table. At least they appear to be talking about it now, more so this week than in the past. Why do you think that is? Well, it definitely feels like it's Groundhog Day because it seems like every year we go through the song and dance about the provinces wanting more money, uh, the federal government holding back, trying to control it, and there really hasn't been a solution. And it sounds like both sides are getting pretty frustrated. So hopefully there'll be a solution soon because I don't know if the hospitals can take it anymore. Um, are you surprised to see, uh, whether it's Christia Freeland or Jugmeet Singh or even the Prime Minister, talking about this at this time? Many times they'll refer to this as a provincial matter, yet when it came to dental care or uh, daycare or even the chatter of pharma care, they're all in for those discussions but don't seem to be ready to talk about health care. Uh, it's because it's easy to talk about those things and it's new and exciting um, and there has been problems that the government created for themselves to fall into. It's exciting announcements where this has been an ongoing issue for decades and the past couple of years with COVID has really just sped up them and really made the system the shortfalls more apparent. So I, I, I am a little bit surprised that they're talking about it now, just given all the issues that are going on for Canadians. But I think when children are unable to get into hospitals uh, and, and see a doctor, it, it becomes a real crisis. And I think that's why we're talking about it today. Are you surprised that Jagmeet Singh said uh, this he may think about it, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, this could lead to a triggering of an election. Do you think we're going to see that? Uh, the former leader of the NDP, Thomas Mulcair, was quoted in a piece as saying he thinks that we might be going to the polls in 2023. Yeah, uh, everyone likes to posture and say, oh, I'll pull my support if, if the government doesn't do this. Then it's a good bargaining chip, but I, I think at the end of the day, I don't see an election in the cards anytime soon. I don't think Canadians want to have an election. Um, most of the political parties are not in a position to have the election. And when it comes to uh, Tom Mulcair, I'll be a little hesitant in terms of reading his credentials when it comes to reading the tea leaves of the NDP mm-hmm. since he's left office there. Um, in regard to where Canadians' heads are now, we obviously know inflation, housing, all of those things are issues, but healthcare seems to be at least in the top two or three or such. Um, with what we're seeing now, and we remember this during the global pandemic, um, older people were suffering and, and were passing, and the hospital system was, was crumbling under the pressure. We have the same thing now, except it's younger people, and it's the flu as opposed to COVID. Are Canadians getting fed up with this? And I know it's been a long time. It's been this. You can blame it on various levels of government, what have you. But are Canadians saying enough is enough? we got to start bragging about this and fix it. 
Exactly. In terms of healthcare spending, Canada spends, I believe, like some of the most per capita, and we have some of the worst outcomes. And Abacus Data just came out of a recent poll and said, because we were just talking about elections in terms of voting issues, 56% of voters see this as one of the top three issues that they would be voting on if an election happened today. And I think, to be honest with you, healthcare cuts through all jurisdictional tape. It's like a pothole. You want to get it fixed. You don't really care who fixes it. If you have a broken arm, you want to be able to go to the hospital and get that taken care of. And Canadians are seeing that right now. So I think there's more of an appetite in general just to find some agreements and to solve these problems. Because I think when people think about Canada, they don't really want to think about healthcare happening in hallways, healthcare happening in trailers in the parking lot or people being turned away because that's not the Canada that anyone wants to live in. Again, we are always quite boastful about our Canadian healthcare system until the global pandemic. Um, but again, now we're talking about dental care programs, pharma care programs, daycare programs. How can Canadians have confidence that the same thing uh, that has happened to healthcare won't happen to dental care or or pharma care or or daycare? I mean, it starts good and then slowly the feds just keep pulling money back, pulling money back. Are we are we going over the same tracks here? Are we making making the same mistakes? It seems like deja vu in that sense, and that's a really good point, Scott. We don't know how it's going to go with dental care. We don't know how it's going to go with pharmacare or universal daycare, and that's the thing is the government saying trust us, we'll be able to deliver for you, but. That might not always be the case because governments change. So I think Canadians are a little bit skeptical in terms of the other social nets and social programming that this government has promised and is looking to implement because we can't get the basics right. We can't have we are having children that are having a hard time breathing, not being able to see a doctor. That that's a little outrageous. And I think no matter what your political stripe is, you realize that's a problem, and that's one that you will see the government of all colors and all levels need to get together and tackle it and fix it. Uh, it seems I had one expert say that everybody wants to take credit for fixing it, but nobody wants to jump in and actually do it. Um, is there political gain to going in there and grabbing this bull by the horns and just getting her done? Or is it just there's nothing good out of this? <laughs> uh, there's absolutely like every, no matter who you are, if you're a politician, said I fixed the health care system. Not only would that help Justin Trudeau's legacy, it would also help the Liberal Party in the next election, whenever that might be again. It's a top issue for voters. And typically, if you're a liberal looking to fix the problem, healthcare is not an issue that conservatives ever win on. It's very much an issue that they try to back away from. And we saw in the last election that Justin Trudeau beat Aaron O'Toole over the head saying he's going to cut funding for healthcare. He's going to privatize it. And the conservatives didn't really have a good answer for that. And that kind of that helped secure their win last time. And if he can say, look at look at me, I fixed it. You can trust me. Vote me in again. That's a that's a good step to getting a majority government for him. Uh, should uh, Pierre Pauly ever be stepping up and saying, here's what he would do? I think so, especially as the government in waiting, as you commonly are called as an opposition party, you want to present ideas and be able to share how you're going to fix the problems uh, that Canadians are facing. With that said, it's a complicated issue because uh, last year he was asked about it and he made some comments and fell into a trap talking about privatization and all sides jumped on him very quickly saying, this is a sign if you elect a part of our government, you're going to see cuts, cuts, cut, hospitals privatized and those that need it most will be able to access it. So he has to tread very, very lightly. Will we ever get over the privatization issue? I mean, because it's already there and people just it's it's like they don't you know, they've got it in their mouth and they don't want to admit it. They don't want to spit it out. 
It's everyone's dirty little secret. Uh, exactly. No one wants to talk about it, it is there. Um, but people really embrace Canadians, especially embrace this universal healthcare. We all have equal access to it. So it will always be in the background. It'll kind of just be there, but no one's going to want to talk about the elephant in the room that it is that. And and it's not a winning issue politically. Like it, it's a death trap if you try to talk about privatizing anything because you're just going to get destroyed from the left. And there's not much space in the right in terms of people interested. If you if you like private healthcare, you probably have it. You're not going to be voting on it. Daniel Perry with his consultant, Summa Strategies, where we are uh, with federal politics at this point. Uh, Daniel, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, how are you today? I am tremendous. How are you? Wow, tremendous is pretty good. What, What makes you tremendous today? It was just the first word that came to mind. (laughs) <laughs> All right, perfect. All right, uh, let's talk World Cup. France beats Morocco today. It's Argentina and France in the World Cup. Your thoughts on this matchup? Uh, I'm disappointed. I was I was hoping for both the teams that lost to win because I think it would have been more fun to have two teams that I don't. Th- I know uh, Morocco has never won. There's never been an African team in the finals, mm-hmm. and I don't believe Croatia's ever won. They've been in the finals. They were in the finals last time, but I. I you know, I, I I am I'm not a diehard soccer fan. I watch in the Euros, I watch in the World Cup, and already I'm tired of France. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're they're like the New York Yankees apparently now. It's like, hey, come on, give me somebody else, and I don't care. I got nothing against the French people. It's just your mm-hmm. team bores me now. And Argentina, uh, you know, that's fine. Messi, you know, Messi is a great player. It'll be great to see him win, but I'm. I don't know. Here, here, without any rooting interest, once Canada was out, I was just going straight underdog. All right. So how do you sum up this edition of? Uh, hmm. Always controversy. You know what I was thinking yesterday about? Uh, yeah, cause there's always controversy. What I was thinking yesterday, and this, this goes to all these big events. I can't remember the exact number now of how many billions of dollars Qatar spent to host this, to build the stadiums, right. all the dead bodies that they had, like four or 500 people who died building them. I mean, tens of billions of dollars. And we've got one game left, and then was it worth it? Yeah. I mean, when you, when you with all that money and all that, you know, and look, I love these events, but I have very much in recent years grown towards the, especially with the Olympics, towards the side that I don't think we need to have new locales every single time. Like somebody had suggested it was a brilliant idea. Why don't you have three cities for the Summer Olympics that are on a rotation and you'll each host three times Hmm. over, you know, so let's say it's Paris, London, New York. I'm making it up. Paris hosts this year. London hosts in four years. New York hosts four years after that. Then you go back to Paris. Not only does everybody save some money, but you are then obligated, if you're one of those cities, to keep those facilities in good shape. Unlike, have you ever seen the pictures of Athens facilities from, Hmm. what was Athens, 2004? Most of the stuff that was built for Athens is now overrun by weeds and run down and not in use anymore. Yeah. If you had this situation where, you know, you have to, 12 years from now, we're coming back. And then 12 years after that, we're coming back. Now, at least your money has counted for something. I, I just, I, I look at this, what happens in Qatar, and they don't have 
vast soccer leagues, not high-end soccer leagues. They, they, you you watch what's going to happen. I mean, there's enough money there. They'll probably keep these things up, but these are going to sit empty most of the time now. But they do have a big warehouse full of Budweiser. That is one thing they do have. Um, the past <laughs> FIFA president said Qatar was a mistake uh, because of human rights situations and what we've seen come up over the Sorry. last little while. I'm, is that nice? I'm laughing contained? not. I'm laughing not because of what he said about Qatar. I'm laughing because the current head of FIFA at the beginning of this at a press conference says, "Oh yeah, yeah we'd be all up for having one in North Korea." Well, wait a second. Like, and then said everybody was racist for criticizing Qatar. Uh, yeah. It, like, okay, you want to go have a World Cup in North Korea. You're open to a World Cup in North Korea because what they always say, Scott, and again, I find this part of it. I love these events. I just find the stuff around them and the people involved so annoying because, well, we can change the world. We can ch- we, we will bring the sport to you and the love and the brotherhood. How did that work out for people in Russia, let's say, or Ukraine yeah. with Sochi? How did that? Yeah. Has Beijing suddenly become an open society because the world came to Beijing? Uh, what, what about some of the other places that, that the Olympics or these games have been? Have they, have they thrown open the brotherhood and freedom of the world and made everything better? Come on. It's like it's, a, it's, an, it's always a giant crock of you-know-what, but it convinces people to build They're the common. stuff. I, I just, I love the events. I've said that four times now. I love the events, but there's got to be a better way that doesn't cost so bloody much in places that can't afford to do this, really. Scott Radley hosting the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be Have well. On, great show. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, even when you just don't like us, we'll still give you the last word. An anonymous listener wrote in to say, Scott Thompson is an idiot. I don't listen to your station because his voice and his dumb as commentary are about as annoying as getting stung with a hornet over and over and over again. Hamilton can do better than this, can't we? 